Was the Venezuelan president's use of a constituent assembly an opportunistic power grab? What is the true source of food shortages and economic hardship in present-day Venezuela? How is the Canadian government obstructing local solidarity actions? How does the Venezuelan government's crackdowns on dissent over the last year compare with the repression of the late 1980s? On this week's Global Research News Hour radio show, we continue our coverage of the Venezuelan crisis with two guests. First, we hear from Telesur journalist Mike Preisner about the omissions in Western media's coverage of Venezuela. Then we hear from Barry Weisletter, a Canadian organizer with Socialist Action, about Canada's complicity in the Venezuelan crisis and about a frustrated effort to engage in a dialogue with a Venezuelan official last month. Finally, we will hear an excerpt from a talk delivered at a Winnipeg venue by Venezuelan Minister Carlos Bron Martinez on October 19th. On this week's program, Maduro in the crosshairs, what you are not being told about the Venezuelan crisis. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of November 9th, 2018. I'm series host and producer Michael Welch. The Global Research News Hour is a special radio collaboration between the Center for Research on Globalization and campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on occupied Anishinaabe Gakin, the homeland of the Métis Nation and the traditional territory of the Hiawak and the Nakota. We seek to provide you with access to analysis of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our program is available from the Center's website, globalresearch.ca. We'll begin our show with news notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. While Canada chooses to speak of the dire human rights and humanitarian crisis in Venezuela, where there is none, it ignores, condones, and rather endorses Saudi Arabia in the making of one of the worst humanitarian crises in Yemen. That is the most vicious double standard that a democratic country can demonstrate. Many of the arguments in the response to the petition have been questioned and rejected in a long-standing rebuttal to the government's position on Venezuela in other venues. For instance, Canada continues condemning the National Constituent Assembly, or ANC, that it claims was, quote, established in contravention of the Venezuelan constitution, unquote. That is a blatant lie. That comes from the article, Citizens Petition to Lift All Sanctions Against Venezuela is Rejected by Canadian Parliament, by Nino Pagliccia, posted November 9th. The Obama 2008 Coalition of Youth, Latinos, Blacks, and Union Labor dissolved as fast as it was formed. The result of that was not only the debacle of 2016, but the subsequent conservative conquest of the Supreme Court and virtually the entire federal judiciary under Trump, an across-the-board wipeout of decades of business regulations, a $4 trillion tax windfall for business, investors and wealthy households, a total retreat on climate change, and a descent into a nasty political culture of emerging white nationalism and increasing secret violence and polarization. It all began with Obama's naive bipartisanship that we now see Democrat party leaders like Pelosi, and no doubt the corporate moneybags on the DNC, attempting to resurrect once again. Bipartisanship 
is a political indicator of a party no longer convinced of its own ability to lead and forge a new direction. Contrast the results of the Democratic Party bipartisanship from Obama to Pelosi with Republican Party rejection of anything bipartisan. That comes from the article, None Dare Call It Victory, Analysis of U.S. 2018 Elections, Part 2, by Dr. Jack Rasmus, posted November 9th, originally appearing on the author's blog site, jackrasmus.com. Dr. Joel Moskowitz, a University of California, Berkeley public health professor, told the UK's Daily Mail on May 29, 2018, that the deployment of 5G, quote, constitutes a massive experiment on the health of all species, unquote. In order to facilitate faster data transfer speeds, 5G will utilize millimeter waves, smaller waves accessed through a higher frequency of the electromagnetic spectrum, not previously used by the telecom industry. These smaller waves cannot travel far, nor can they penetrate many types of materials. So this means that there will need to be millions of small cell towers about the size of a refrigerator close together within a few feet of one another on every street. Dr. Moskowitz warns that these millimeter waves can affect the eyes, the testes, the skin, the nervous system, and the sweat glands. That comes from the article, 5G Corporate Grail, Microwave Radiation, by Joyce Nelson, posted November 9th, originally published on Watershed Sentinel. While the reopening of an embassy might not ordinarily seem like much, the case of the UAE's plan to reportedly do just that in Damascus is actually much more important than the casual observer might think, particularly after the Syrian deep state-connected AMN revealed that this might be the opening stage of a much larger pivot to the GCC countries. While appearing at first glance to be against Iran's interests, the opposite might be true if one accepts that Tehran cannot continue indefinitely funding its military mission to the Arab Republic under the U.S. sanctions pressure and that its post-Daesh presence there is provoking Russia's Israeli ally to es escalate the situation to the point of possibly reversing all the stabilizing gains that were made in the country over the past three years. The argument can be made that it's better for Syria to request Iran's phased withdrawal under the face-saving pretext of leaving as heroes than to bear the consequences of keeping its forces in the country after their original mission has been completed. Iran cannot afford the military and economic costs of fighting a lopsided proxy war with Israel in Syria, even if it serves the political purpose of temporarily distracting its population from the predicted worsening of their living conditions throughout the course of the U.S. reimposed sanctions regime. Nor does Damascus even want this conflict to take place on its territory, precisely at the point when so much has been achieved over the past few years and a so-called political solution is finally within sight. Syria isn't betraying Iran because the two already signed a military deal over the summer and will continue to cooperate in a normal capacity. But it's just that Damascus might have reached the conclusion that the reconstruction assistance that it could obtain from the GCC is worth downscaling that specific facet of its strategic partnership with the Islamic Republic if it was already proving to be troublesome as it is. That comes from the article, What is the Significance of the Reopening of the UAE Embassy in Damascus? Syria's Pivot Towards Reconciliation with Saudi Arabia? By Andrew Karibko, post-November 8th, originally appearing at Eurasia Future. Once developed, 
The system, which was originally intended only for occasional low-level use, was then deployed to handle nearly all the CIA's agent communications worldwide, including a number of key countries targeted by Washington to include Iran and China. Each country had a separate site, and the sites themselves were set up under innocuous business or social cover arrangements, which presumably would have made them of no interest to prowling counterintelligence services. What exactly went wrong is not completely clear, but the mechanism was discovered by Iranian counterintelligence, possibly employing information provided by a double agent. The Iranians determined what kind of indicators and components the CIA site had and then went on a Google search to find other similar sites. They then watched their site as well as the others, noting both their activity and their idiosyncrasies and were presumably were able to penetrate the site directed against them. That comes from the article, The CIA's Latest Greatest Failure, by Philip Giraldi, posted November 8th, originally appearing at Strategic Culture Foundation. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar. The UN Refugee Agency and the UN Migration Agency announced on November 8th that the number of migrants worldwide originating from Venezuela has reached 3 million. Internationally, the country has endured economic sanctions from the US, Canada, and other like-minded countries. In its public statements, the Canadian government has placed heavy emphasis on a report from a panel of independent international experts appointed by the Organization of American States Secretary General, which concluded that there are reasonable grounds to presume that crimes against humanity, as defined in Article 7 of the Rome Statute, may have been committed in Venezuela. Canada has also justified the imposition of economic sanctions on the Maduro government based on allegations that Maduro is undermining democracy in Venezuela and framed the Constituent Assembly as an unconstitutional and undemocratic power grab. Mainstream media's coverage of the situation in Venezuela has largely reinforced the narrative that blame for chaos in Venezuela falls squarely on the leadership. But is this a fair or accurate description of what's going on? Providing us with some background on the crisis in Venezuela is Mike Preisner. He's an Iraq War veteran and has worked in organizations of uh, veterans and active duty U.S. military members to end the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, he hosts the Eyes Left podcast, and he is co-producer with Abby Martin of the Empire Files for Telesur. He joins us from Los Angeles. Welcome, Mike Preisner, to the Global Research News Hour. Michael, thanks for having me. Now, there's been a lot of dialogue um, <clears throat> among Western governments and certainly in mainstream media about the undemocratic uh, activities of the Maduro government, uh, particularly the use of the Constituent Assembly uh, as uh, some sort of a, a power grab to thwart the democratically elected opponents in the National Assembly. Can you, first off, explain how that move uh, uh, has been democratically justified? Sure. Well, I think in general, when it comes to the elections, um, you know, elections in Venezuela are some of the most monitored and audited and checked in the entire world by uh, countless international observation bodies, uh, observers, things like that. Um, and so, you know, and they always win the elections, right? I think out of the last 25 elections, the PSUV has won uh, 21 or something like that. Um, so, you know, 
really the, the claim that the government is there undemocratically holds in the water if you actually look at um, you know, the election system and, and who, who comes out to vote. But in just in talking about the Constituent Assembly, in, in particular the last election, Maduro won, clearly won re-election. The opposition had no candidate they could offer up that could, that could perform in any way in the elections. And so if there was election fraud, it was the most massive election fraud of any country. Maduro won by, by several, several million votes. Um, but anyways, and when it just comes to the Constituent Assembly, uh, of course the opposition used this as you know, this power grab. It was stacked with Maduro's family and Maduro loyalists, and it just overrode uh, the legislative body, and it was just this new Maduro, pro-Maduro-only body that was uh, you know, just stacked and created out of nowhere. Um, first of all, the Constituent Assembly was afforded for in the Constitution. It was written into the Constitution that a body like this could be created. But the entire concept of the Constituent Assembly being undemocratic, the whole point of it was to resolve the problems in the country through democratic means. I mean, this was announced at a time when the opposition was essentially burning the country down, assassinating Chavistas, um, you know, killing large numbers of people. And so what the PSUV did was say, if you want to work out our problems in our country, let's do it together, run and, and for this new body called the Constituent Assembly. And the PSUV begged, essentially, the opposition to run candidates for the Constituent Assembly to be part of it because it was a body that was going to make changes in the country. In fact, they extended the deadline for registering as candidates to try to get, because no opposition candidate had registered to, to run in the Constituent Assembly, they kept extending the deadline to try to get opposition candidates to run in it. So it was an attempt by the leaders of the country to say, we should all sit down at the same table and work things out democratically versus fighting in the streets. Uh, and so the, but the reason that it was overwhelmingly won by Maduro supporters is because they're the only ones who ran, much like in, in the election. You know, the, and they're the only ones who ran because the same reason that Maduro uh, won by a landslide in the presidential election is that the opposition, while they claim to be quite popular and they claim that Maduro is so unpopular, we shouldn't even wait for elections, but international forces should just come and overthrow him and install the opposition because they're, they're really the popular ones. Um, they are incapable of, of coming close to winning in any election. And so that's why they boycotted this constituent assembly, and that's actually why they boycotted the presidential election, uh, except uh, one opposition candidate to the, to the anger of the U.S. and all the rest of the opposition decided to run. Their whole strategy was make them run unopposed, then we can call it a dictatorship because no one run against them. So this, so is, basically a pub mm -hmm. this is basically a public relations game it's from the point of the opposition. It is, and that's because they've, They've shown that they can't win power democratically. They've tried very hard and with the huge support from the United States. They've tried to win democratically. They can't. They've tried to win through coup and internal revolution by themselves, which they failed at in 2002 and in 2014. Um, and so that they, they know that the only way they can take power, if they failed democratically, if they failed with the coup, the only way they can take power is by foreign assistance, as if the U.S. empire uh, and other you know, imperialist powers or, or junior imperialists in the region actually just come in and overthrow the government and put the opposition in. So they know that that's their only bet of taking power. And so from the violent street demonstrations to the boycott of the election, it's all with the consciousness that it's to create a, a picture to the public, to the international community, to then get more sanctions and more action. So that's even the, you know, when I was there, even the protesters we talked to on, on the ground, they're very much, they just want to be filmed by international press so then they can show it the international media to create an international scandal. So they're quite aware of what the strategy is and they've been at it for some time. Talk about those opposition protests. I mean, for people in Canada and the U.S., uh, you know, following the, the media, uh, they're, they're reading the OAS-sponsored reports about violent government crackdowns on peaceful demonstrators. And can you speak to anything you witnessed on the ground that might shift that impression? 
Yeah, so I mean, first of all, there's just the death toll numbers, right? I mean, so I was there in, you know, the our summer of last year in 2017, which was at the height of the, the protest um, in August and September. And I mean, the very first thing is the death count, right? I mean, you know, Maduro has killed 100 protesters. And, you know, the, the general of the National Guard, he is responsible for the death of, of 100 people. Um, so we, when we were there, we actually looked through, did really diligent research to, to classify each one of the deaths. You know, autopsy reports, reports from... Um, uh, legal leaders who are actually in the opposition and, and uh, classifying each of the deaths. And it actually turned out, when you look at them, that the vast majority, something like 80% or more, were deaths that were caused by the opposition, meaning lynchings, assassination, bombing and shootings of police, um, you know, targeting of Chavistas and killing them, and, so, and, you know, and just killing random people, like shooting into crowds with these homemade guns and, and things like that. And so many of the protesters that were killed were killed by opposition protesters in, that were just standing behind them with, the, with these homemade shotguns. So, so at the very first look, you know, of course there were uh, people killed by, by police and military, but that number was actually incredibly small compared uh, to the number of killings that the opposition was carrying out. And the opposition was carrying out very gruesome killings. I mean, we're talking about uh, they burned a man alive for being black and for being a Chavista, yelling, hey, get the black guy, we'll see what we do to Chavistas. And an entire mob of hundreds of people beat, stabbed, and burned him to death. And so those are the kinds of, of violent scenes that people weren't seeing in the United States and in the West. Um, but that was very much uh, the reality. So in my personal experience, though, with the opposition protests, I mean, of course, there are people in Venezuela that have very legitimate grievances against the government. It is in an economic crisis. Of course, you're going to have a sector of the population uh, that is experiencing some discontent. Um, and, and so there were, there were peaceful demonstrations that were when I went to the big peaceful opposition demonstrations, there was no government forces around. There was no police, there was no military. People were free to march and, and do whatever we wanted. Um, but then there's the other types of protests, like Guarimbas, which are much smaller in number uh, and are extremely violent. And the night that I went out with the Guarimba protests, I mean, they, they, it was about 300 young people wearing masks, marching around the streets, but not just marching. They were just attacking and burning everything, right? Um, going onto the highway, uh, throwing Molotov cocktails at cars, blocking the freeway, and pulling truck drivers out of their trucks and using 18-wheelers to block the freeway, setting things on fire. Of course, they burn. The things that they target are like city buses, maternity clinics, food storage warehouses, anything that's a sign of the government, uh, they attack to burn down. And so the only time at this demonstration I was at that the government used any force is when the opposition, after they had taken over the freeway and everything, they marched to a, to a military base and started throwing bombs at the soldiers guarding the base. And then so they fired a couple tear gas canisters, and then everyone ran away and said, please film us, we're being attacked. Um, and so that was the extent of the, of the clashes that I witnessed. But as I said before, it was all this kind of theater, right? It was to push as far as you can go to create, do as much violence and as much damage as possible until inevitably the police or military will respond and then throw the images around the world and say, see how, how horribly we're repressed in this dictatorship. I will say that that night, not a single person was arrested in the opposition protest, despite the, the chaos that they created. Now, I live in the United States. This is supposedly the greatest democracy on earth, the one that's lecturing Venezuela. I've been arrested about five times for free speech, constitutionally protected free speech activity uh, and protests here in the United States. Yeah, when I was in Venezuela, I saw not a single person arrested for, for quite serious crimes. Hmm. Now, I'm, <clears throat> is there any doubt in your mind that uh, the media is, is deliberately sanitizing the situation? I mean, if, if they were doing their jobs, uh, there would be, uh, we'd be seeing uh, different uh, coverage? 
Well, there's a couple things. I mean, first of all, there's just the, in general the coverage of the crisis, right? I mean, all the news stories are, you know, people are butchering and eating dogs because there's no food, and then there's so much video footage of just grocery stores that are completely empty, nothing on the shelves, like it, it was a hurricane disaster or something like that. Um, and then there's all these stories about how all of the media is controlled by the government and there's no free press in Venezuela at all. Well, when we were there, I mean, I went to quite a few grocery stores, quite a few food markets all over the country, and I did not see a single empty shelf. Um, when you look at the newsstands and the news on the television, you see that the vast majority, like 90% of the media that you see, is very strong anti-government media. In fact, one of the newspaper headlines I saw when I was there was Trump must take care of Maduro, meaning Trump must come overthrow Maduro. That was like the most popular newspaper on, on the newsstand, um, or the most prominent one that you would see. I don't know if it was the most popular with the people. Um, so there's little things like that where obviously the U.S. media is uh, obviously creating a false picture because the, the alternative reality is so, um, is so apparent. Um, but then, you know, there, and there's just, so, there's just so much more that's left out. I mean, and, and there's, it's such a deliberate plan. But the other thing, other than just showing, you know, the, the economic reality, uh, distorting it, but that the protesters were just so glorified. I mean, even on so-called liberal shows like John Oliver's show on Comedy Central and, or on HBO um, and, they, and, and Vice and things that are considered these, like, kind of liberal outlets, they're portraying the opposition protesters as just like these, these heroic, it was like the Occupy movement in the United States, but in Venezuela, and there was these heroic people fighting the, the worst kind of government repression. Um, and it was completely whitewashing what was happening, that they were lynching black people, that they were burning people alive, that they were targeting press, targeting and killing journalists. I mean, so the reality was, was quite scary. We actually had to flee the country because they, when they found out who we were, uh, myself and Abby Martin, we started getting a, a litany of death threats, and it became unsafe for us to be there. And so to see the kind of, you know, the intense glorification in particular of these protesters uh, as mostly peaceful uh, victims, um, that, was, that was so far, far wrong because they were actually brutally killing a, a large number of people and, and almost killed us as well. Okay, I want to back up to something I heard you say earlier, that, that there aren't any grocery shelves, like there's no, uh, the shelves are not empty on, in mm -hmm. the stores. But to be fair, there are shortages of, of basic supplies, aren't there? Like cooking Absolutely. oil, butter, flour, Absolutely. toilet paper. I mean, could you fill in the public's the, the blanks in, in the public's understanding of, of why those food items uh, are in short supply in this oil-rich country? Sure. So all of the main food items, like the you know the, the essentials in the pantry, as you said, cooking oil, flour, butter, things like that, they are produced by huge corporations in the country. I mean, Venezuela has elected a socialist government, but it's not a socialist country. They didn't use the means of production. They didn't nationalize all of the corporations. So you still have these massive corporations in the country that still are in charge of the production of all of these things. And guess what? They're all people that are strongly anti-socialist, anti-Maduro, and were very strong anti-Chavez. And in fact, they are actually people that participated in the coup attempts in 2002 and 2014 and in other thwarted coups. So they're very much upset. It's not just the, the people on the streets that are part of the opposition. It's the richest people in the country, these billionaires that are just like Donald Trump. There's one company called Polar, which produces like 10 of the 12 major foodstuffs in the country. And so because they have such power in terms of production, as I said before, the, the whole plan is to create an international uh, scandal, right, by, by showing how terrible it is in Venezuela. So they, of course, are intentionally not producing certain things, or they produce certain things and then release them on the black market, or they produce things and then they ship them over uh, into Colombia and sell them at an exorbitant rate there. And so it is it's, it's something that is completely manufactured. Um, and they, and you notice it's with particular things. It's with things that, that elicit a kind of response. So 
Um, you know, toilet paper is, is one of the things that is very hard to find, right? You can find other paper products, napkins, paper towels. I mean, all the materials that are used to make toilet paper are used to make other things. But why can't you find toilet paper? Because the companies are producing them, but then they are releasing them on the black market. They're not giving them uh, to the stores. And this is a very intentional thing to try to create problems in the country and to create, you know, this kind of media spectacle of, oh, my God, there's no toilet paper. It's like, well produces all the toilet paper in the country. And so one of the things that the uh, socialist movement there has been doing is trying to develop their own modes of production so that they don't have to rely on the big corporations, like to produce flour and oil and all those things on their own, which they are doing, and they're doing an increasing degree. But, you know, you can't overstate, you know, how much power the major corporations have in terms of production. Could you speak a little bit more about those private corporations uh, in Venezuela and how they're contributing to the inflation and economic crisis? Oh, there's so many ways. I mean, just, just as I was saying with the products, of hoarding of products and then releasing them under the black market so that the price is greatly inflated. And so, you know, all of the things that they're in shortage of, they're not in shortage. They're in shortage on the official shelves. They're not in shortage on the black market. Any of the things that there's a shortage of, you can find them on the black market, but for like 100 times the price. Uh, and that's coming directly from the corporations. There's also things like cash extraction. I mean, corporations will get, you know, a, a large sum of money from the government to produce things, and then they'll just literally ship the cash out of the country and sell the cash, in a sense, in, in Colombia and, and things like that. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a sabotage. It's, it's an act of sabotage, and it's rightly characterized as an economic war. I mean, coupled with U.S. sanctions, uh, the actions of these big corporations like that, it, it has a very strategic and specific purpose uh, to shatter the economy, and it, and it is doing just that. When you have all these just different fronts of assault on the economic level, um, it has a huge impact on the economy, and that's that's the main reason the economy is is in the state of Yeah, it sounds a little bit like the uh, the oil companies' uh, lockouts in the early two thousands. Absolutely, and I mean, people really that was one of the the first examples of dictatorship by Chavez that fired uh, all these top oil executives at the oil company and, and oil ministers. Well, they had jammed up the oil products; they had literally shut down the country by shutting off the oil industry. And so, of course, they were going to be fired. That's not a very dictatorial move when you're, you're saving the country from, from disaster. Um, so, yeah, so it's been, a, it's been a long process, and you're right to point that out, because this didn't just start recently. I mean, since Chavez uh, was democratically elected in Venezuela, and since the people became the political force in Venezuela, where for the first time the poor uh, and working masses all of a sudden had the power, and they themselves were in charge, not Chavez, uh, the U.S. empire and its allies in the region and, and the OAS, and of course the very, very rich in Venezuela, started a policy of trying to implement regime change through any means, whether it's democratic, violent, or, or whatever. Um, but they've largely failed in that project over the last 20 years. Okay, and maybe uh, we, we could just sort of finish off. Um, uh, we hear a lot about desperate Venezuelans fleeing the country, but are there any unique underreported programs in place, citizen-driven or otherwise, that are assisting Venezuelans through the food shortages and other challenges? Oh, of course. I mean, there's a program called the CLAP program, which is a massive effort of small uh, farmers and, and communes and collect collectives across the country that's growing all of the food that, that is in short supply and distributing them for free to all the, all the most unique families. So there's a regular distribution of CLAP boxes, which have all of the different uh, foodstuffs in them. Um, and so there's, there's a there's that and so many other programs. I mean, they really are. The entire country is really tackling it head on. But I think that's, that's what the number one thing I learned there was, is that the people are so empowered and the people are so engaged. And so, yes, you have people fleeing the country because it's a hard life in Venezuela because they're experiencing an economic war. So there are things that are in shortage. Um, you know, and, and there are all types of problems 
that are endemic of, of an economic crisis. And so, of course, you're going to have a certain sector of the population uh, that wants to leave. But that's just a small percentage of the population. And the majority of the population, from what I saw, were not just politically aware, but they were politically engaged and all engaged in solving the problems of the country. So you drive through Caracas, you'll see just mass meetings of 100 people just randomly on the side of the road. And what are they talking about? They're talking about the Constituent Assembly. They're talking about the economic reforms that the government was proposing to, to try to save the country. I mean, to see just such a high level of grassroots democracy and grassroots activity uh, was really quite impressive. And so I went into it thinking Venezuela is about to collapse. Uh, there's a huge opposition movement. The Chavistas are very weak, and they're in a position of, of just barely holding on to power. But when I was there in Venezuela, all across the country, I saw that, well, at the office, no wonder the opposition hasn't won yet, because the Chavismo movement is so strong and so engaged uh, that even despite all of the terrible things that they're dealing with, they're still in a very strong position of, of dominance and, and, and power, which was uh, extremely encouraging for me to see. And that's what you don't see in the U.S. press or in the Western press. You see the opposition protests. You never saw the millions of people that were marching in support of the government. And you never saw the millions of people that were actively engaged in meetings and, and discussions and, and elections and all of the things uh, that real democracy looks like. Mike Preisner, it's been a treat having you on the show. Uh, thanks for joining us, and please send Abby Martin our regards. I definitely will. Thanks so much, Michael. We've been joined by Mike Preisner, a journalist, uh, Iraq War veteran, anti-war activist, and co-producer of The Empire Files for Telesur Media Network. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcasting from CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and from partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. In October, there were long planned efforts on the part of Canadian solidarity activists to bring a Venezuelan Deputy Minister of Foreign Affairs to Canada to engage in a dialogue with Canadians about what is really going on in Venezuela. Plans were afoot to bring Minister Carlos Ron Martinez to Canada near the end of October and visit at least three Canadian cities, but those plans were derailed by the inability uh, to receive a visitor's visa in time. When the Global Research News Hour reached out to the Venezuelan embassy, they indicated that the visa application had not been authorized in time for the minister's planned visit. There's no word yet on whether or not the visa will ever be approved, but it is still theoretically under consideration. Joining me now is Barry Wiseletter. He is a retired teacher and union organizer and the Federal Secretary of Socialist Action, one of the groups organizing speaking events for the Venezuelan minister. Uh, Barry Wiseletter, welcome. Thank you. Glad to be with you on the show. Tell us a little bit more about the Venezuela solidarity work Sol- Socialist Action has been engaging in in recent years. We are one of a number of organizations in the Toronto-Venezuela Solidarity Coalition, <clears throat> I'd say there are um, a dozen organizations or more involved. Uh, at least half of them are, you know, Latino organizations with roots in the different countries of Central and South America. So it's uh, it's great to work with them. And uh, what we're coming up against is, uh, you know, hostile treatment uh, of Venezuela by <clears throat> by the government of Canada, despite its pretenses to be for you know uh, fairness and openness, transparency. Uh, everywhere. Uh, that's not what they're demonstrating. In fact, uh, you know, they uh, they have definitively uh, refused the entry visa requested for the Foreign Affairs Deputy Minister, Carlos Ron Martinez, who you mentioned a moment ago. Uh, the consulate told me just a few days ago uh, that um, the request for an entry visa has been uh, turned down by Ottawa. 
so um, the the tour that had been planned, uh, which was going to start in Ottawa and then continue through Montreal, Toronto, Winnipeg, and uh, Vancouver and Victoria, is now not just suspended or postponed; it's it's cancelled, and I think that's a shame. Okay, um, how how far back were organizers set when uh, you proved unsuccessful in bringing the minister to Canada? Uh, there was a meeting uh, with consular officials in Toronto, uh, I can't speak for other cities, um, in, in early October. They reached out uh, to us and, and they said, well, we'd like to have a, a, an encounter with the deputy minister. Um, uh, can you uh, organize a venue? Um, it, it's not going to be a, a huge, um, massive public meeting, <clears throat> but a meeting for all of the solidarity groups that are involved in the Toronto-Venezuela Solidarity Coalition. And we have a track record of uh, doing uh, work to, um, to uh, facilitate fairness towards, towards Venezuela. Venezuela uh, doesn't have a very big army. Colombia has a huge one, plus U.S. military bases uh, bristling with uh, weapons of mass destruction. Uh, but Venezuela has borne the brunt of, um, of U.S. Um, um, you know, diplomatic and uh, trade uh, sanctions. Um, about a year ago, uh, the Venezuelan ambassador was expelled from Canada, and uh, two other uh, embassy officials were were removed. So the head of the consulate in Toronto had to go as uh, chef de mission in uh, in Ottawa, where you know that's where he runs, he leads the embassy there. Um, at the same time, the government of Canada and, and even opposition parties have um, rolled out the red carpet for, you know, right-wing leaders, um, promoters of uh, terrorism in Venezuela against the elected and re-elected many times uh, government to visit Canada and to, uh, you know, to spread their, um, uh, their un- I would say, untruthful version of the, of the situation in the country. The country is suffering problems and... Uh, I, I would submit that most of them are the result of the sharp decline in the in the in the in the price of oil and uh, the refusal of uh, um, the European Union, Canada, and the United States to permit trade um, and normal commercial relations with with Venezuela. There's also a horrendous problem of hoarding inside the country. Uh, there's lots of fruit and vegetables on sale uh, at the uh, intersections and you know, uh, markets uh, across Venezuela, but uh, a number of goods um, that have been noted in the media are in short supply, and that's because of hoarding, and it's also because of the uh, the trade embargo. So yeah. we, we, we want the truth to be known, and that's why Canadians have an interest in hearing what uh, Carlos Ron Martinez has to say. Okay, I just need to clarify something, because I was actually in charge, uh, excuse me, I was in touch with the charge d'affaires of the Bolivarian Republic of Venezuela yesterday, and uh, what I heard was that uh, you that they had not been officially refused, that it was still uh, under consideration. So you, you said that you were you were in charge with the Venezuelan uh People earlier, or who was it that told you that there was an officially they were officially refused? Uh, the consul general in Toronto, oh, and, I of see. Course, and of course, you know, I don't speak Spanish very well, and 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 English is not her first or even second or third language, so <laughs> I might have misunderstood, but I think it was uh, communicated pretty clearly that uh, there was no hope of of this tour, uh, you know, as planned, uh, getting underway because uh, 
there's no entry visa uh, agreed. And, uh, you know, Ottawa's been dithering about it for, for over a month. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, it, it, it smells like and looks like and sounds like a, a political decision. Okay. Um, all right. Well, in that case, uh, let me ask you uh, if you can uh, comment on uh, maybe some of the other obstacles faced by organizers like yourself in, in raising awareness about uh, you know, Canada's complicity in the Venezuelan crisis and, and about actions that Canadians can perform to help. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the problems is just getting out the, the truth about what the situation in Venezuela. I've organized some public meetings with uh, eyewitnesses come back uh, to show videos and give accounts of what they've seen. But you don't see the, any, any, any um, uh, fair treatment of Venezuela. I, I almost <laughs> omitted the word fair. There's hardly any coverage of Venezuela because Canadian news organizations don't have reporters in the country. They rely on the news feed from uh, U.S. media, particularly you know, um, uh, conservative uh, media sources, and uh, as a result, um, uh, about a year and a half ago, uh, we organized and we held uh, a protest in front of the CBC headquarters on, in Toronto on Front Street um, to ask, you know, why there's, there's no uh, reporter in Venezuela, why there, we have one-sided reports and biased commentaries uh, passed along um, through the Canadian media, including the CBC, um, which is the public broadcaster, um, you know, deriving uh, their sources from U.S. media outlets, and we wanted to, you know, uh, see the truth about the causes of the conflict in Venezuela. There's, there's a, 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 it's not just a political opposition. It's, um, it, it's a very provocative, um, incendiary, um, terrorist-like um, opposition which has tried to overthrow the government uh, of Venezuela. Um, through paralyzing um, uh, street traffic, uh, terrorizing people. In fact, there was an attempt. There was an attempt to uh, assassinate Maduro. President Maduro, um, uh, just a few months ago in midsummer, was uh, um, in uh, downtown Caracas on a major boulevard, uh, you know, reviewing a military parade, and um, these these devices. Of flying overhead, uh, what do you call them? Um, they drones. Drones, yeah, that's the word. Uh, uh, exploded in midair, uh, and more than one of them. And you'd expect, uh, you know, when there's an assassination attempt on any leader of the EU or the United States or Japan or any, you know, any partner of of the, of, of the Canadian government, there would be some expression of outrage. But uh, Christian Freeland had. Nothing to say about it. Justin Trudeau didn't deplore uh, the the attempt. In fact, they tried to. Uh, they implied that, the, to the extent that they said anything, or that the media said anything here, is that the Venezuelans had staged it in order to, you know, win sympathy, which is an absurdity. Um, you know, the Canadian government is um, approving the sale of uh, of uh, military uh, vehicles to Saudi Arabia, which are deployed against the people of Saudi Arabia and quite possibly in in uh, neighboring Yemen as well which is a where there's a hot civil war underway and uh, severe human um, uh, humanitarian crisis in that country uh, so occasionally they tweak the um, 
the um, the position of the Saudi government, and uh, they come down, you know, uh, with resounding criticism against the government of Venezuela, which has, you know, not involved in any foreign wars, not engaged in, uh, the, the, you know, the, the kind of repression that is uh, normal in the Saudi Arabia and other countries with which with which Canada does business. Uh, Barry, could I ask you then, uh, I mean, you, you mentioned, you know, following on your, your points about the media, I recall there, there was a, a CBC report on September 11th, uh, and uh, it, it painted that, you know, sort of aligned its 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 coverage with this whole meme about the Venezuela, the human rights abusers and democracy undermining and so on. And they did cite uh, uh, at least one Venezuela diaspora group, which was reinforcing that message. Okay, mm-hmm. so I'm wondering if you could uh, share with us any conflict you your your group might have in your organizing with Venezuelans living in Canada who have been appearing in the media and reinforce that message that Maduro is a dictator and human rights violator. We've had demonstrations, uh, uh, pickets, and protests and rallies in front of the offices of the Christian Freeland. Um, Sometimes uh, in years past, when there's an election in Venezuela or a referendum on the Constituent Assembly, um, which 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 was which was um, adopted, uh, we we've we've met some uh, opponents of the Venezuelan government, um, you know, near the uh, the consulate in, in Canada. But there isn't there, there isn't regular contact with with those folks. Uh, they don't come to public meetings that we've hosted on the subject, uh, uh, so rarely do we uh, do we do we encounter encounter them. But um, they, uh, I'm sure they they draw some uh, some of their motivation from the from the media coverage. Okay. Um, I was in New York uh, on uh, on September the 9th, and I opened the um, New York Times front page. U.S. met rebels from Venezuela about coup plot. And it, uh, the writers um, in the opening paragraph say the Trump administration held secret meetings with rebellious military officers from Venezuela over the last year to discuss their plans to overthrow President Maduro, according to American officials, etc., etc. Hmm. That was not even reported in the Canadian press. That uh, you know, U.S. officials admitted to meeting with uh, coup plotters from from Venezuela. So um, there are there are other. Media sources, which I guess uh, right-wing Venezuelans can obtain some of the information they do have uh, from the Latin press uh, in other countries. Keep in mind that Venezuela, most of the most of the radio, television, and newspaper outlets in Venezuela are privately owned. So there's a there's a daily barrage against the government. Uh, there are only two or three major networks uh, that support the position uh, of the government in Caracas. But we don't we don't see the dissidents uh, very very often. But I'm not surprised that they're there because they're getting all kinds of encouragement from from Washington, Ottawa, and their allies and and the establishment media. Okay, so finally, could you comment on some of the activities that your organization plans to take on in coming months to assist the Venezuelan situation? Well, um, we we we. We'd like people to communicate to their members of parliament, to the Canadian government, uh, to write letters to the editor, uh, to uh, deplore Ottawa's refusal to, you know, grant an entry visa 
for uh, Venezuela's uh, Foreign Affairs Deputy Minister, Carlos Ron Martinez. He should be able to enter the country and, uh, and speak what has Ottawa got to fear from what um, one official from, from Venezuela might say when there's you know, such a chorus of hostility in the establishment media towards, towards Venezuela. Venezuela is not perfect. It has problems. Um, um, not all of them are imposed from without, but it's up to the people of Venezuela to solve their problems. Uh, the Jimmy Carter Institute has uh, stated repeatedly that elections and a referenda that have been held in Venezuela are um, you know, peaceful, above board, honest, and, and reliable and accurate. Uh, the Carter Institute does, doesn't say that about all elections everywhere that it um, observes. So I think that has, uh, that has some significance as well. We think people should protest uh, the Ottawa's position. We think Ottawa should get out of the Lima group, which is a group of right-wing governments across um, uh, Latin America, Caribbean, the United States, and Canada are involved, whose aim seems to be to isolate uh, Caracas and, and, and you know, facilitate the, uh, the over overthrow of its democratically elected government. Ottawa, in the name of the Canadian people, should have nothing to do with these kind of uh, disruptive, uh, hostile actions against a peaceful democratic uh, government. To the extent that Venezuela has to take uh, measures against uh, people who explode bombs, who try to set fire to the Supreme Court building, who try to assassinate the president, who stretch razor wire across roadways uh, to, um, to to catch motorcyclists, uh, you know, in a, in, in, and kill them, as, as, you know, who set fire to. Um, uh, supporters of the Venezuelan government, um, often because of their skin color, targeting uh, dark, dark-skinned Latinos uh, in that country. Uh, you know, these, these, these things show that th- there's, there's a real conflict over, for the future of Venezuela, and it's for the Venezuelans to decide, uh, without the sanctions and w- without the encouragement of the terroristic right wing, that Ottawa, unfortunately has been engaged in doing. Barry, I want to thank you very much for taking the time to speak with our listeners. You're very welcome. We've been speaking with Barry Weisletter, a retired teacher and union organizer and the Federal Secretary of Socialist Action. You can find out more about his organization by visiting socialistaction.ca. A postscript. Following this interview, the Global Research News Hour reached out to the Venezuelan Consul General for confirmation of the claim that Minister Carl Ron's visa application was turned down. As of this show's first airing on Friday, November 9th, no such confirmation has been received. We did reach the Charge d'Affaires for the Bolivarian Republic of Venezuela. According to that source, in spite of what the Canadian organizers stated in the previous interview, the embassy is still waiting on an official response regarding the minister's visa application. The Charge d'Affaires also stressed that these sorts of delays are not uncommon in diplomatic circles for visa applications. In the remaining few minutes of our show, we will hear part of the speech delivered by the Venezuelan minister, Carlos Ron Martinez, to a Winnipeg audience by Skype call on Friday, October 19th at the Hotel Fort Garry. In the remarks that follow, the minister discussed the factors that have contributed to the rise of violence and economic hardship in the country. The same day that, you know, in the uh, Organization of American States, was a resolution approved saying that, you know, Venezuela's uh, democracy was in peril or had lost uh, its, uh, or you know, was, was sort of uh, derailed 
by uh, President Maduro. When this took place, um, we started facing a very difficult uh, time. You know, we had a very difficult uh, violence issue, uh, very difficult uh, moments of violence in the streets. Uh, there was an unfortunate loss of lives. Uh, a lot of uh, criticism of the current criticism, the current narrative uh, in in in, uh, in Western media says that these were uh, this was when Venezuelan um, authorities attacked or or, or, or uh, were violent against protesters. And and I have to say, you know, in in some cases, of course, uh, you know, you had you had some um, some officials that might have exceeded. Taken uh, actions that were not uh, proper actions, but when you compare even to Venezuela's own history, I mean, if you, if you go back to 1989 when uh, the Caracas, which was the first popular outburst against uh, neoliberal policies in the country, you know, of the official count is that we lost uh, you know, about 290 some lives. But when you see the reality, I mean, there were mass graves, uh, finding over 3,000 people had died during the repression that took place for that year. So when you compare it to Venezuela's own history, what, what we see, what, what I think is, is very outstanding uh, of 2017, is that for the first time, or even 2014 as well, you know, for the first time, people that were that, that committed, uh, uh, officials that committed or that exceeded their, their authorities and committed some sort of abuse were actually held accountable. I mean, these people were actually put into into jail and, and, and or, or processed, and that's something that's something that was remarkable and that nobody wants to recognize. Um, and and also that you know about a third of the people, the victims of, of the kind of victims that that, that uh, we lost uh, during those days were actually members of uh, you know police or security forces that were trying to uh, uh, stop these uh, protests. So. The idea that has been that has been laid out that you know this was a, 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 a these deaths were part of a Venezuelan repression or official repression was not actually uh, accurate. The way we solved the issue of of um, of violence um, is was something very impressive, I think, for, for modern democracy. See, when when you think of how how does democracy deal with uh, violence, even liberal democracies would sort, you know, would, would turn to repression of some sort and, 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 you know, police forces to try to stop it. But I think the particularity that, that, that I, that I, that's outstanding in Venezuela is that the way a, a participatory democracy deals with violence in the streets is through more participation. And that was President Maduro did. He made a call for a constituent assembly, as is allowed in our in you know our 1999 constitution, because it was set out to as a document to renew itself every so often to adapt to the country's uh, necessities. So it was a call for uh, a constituent assembly that that was accepted by a majority of Venezuelans. There was an opposition that, that tried to block the elections and try to impede people from coming out and vote. But it was very important that, that a lot of people, despite those uh, obstacles, came out and, vote, and voted. And as soon as the vote took place, the day after the country was completely pacified until now, 
whatever reports you hear afterwards, you know, that since July of last year that, you know, there's been violence in this other, you know, there, there's, the, the violence completely stopped um, after the Constituent Assembly was selected. And a new air, you know, I think came through the country that, you know, a new hope of, of, of progress through uh, discussing the issues that, 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 that we needed to discuss, through establishing a way of, of you know, dealing with our uh, economic problems through uh, the Constituent Assembly and not uh, through violence. What happened then, however, and this is very important for you, for, for me, and I'll, I'll close with this, but what happened afterwards was that the international community, or, or, or at least the, the international interest, I should say, in Venezuela, decided that, you know, that was not acceptable. They thought, they, for them, they felt that, you know, the, the only solution acceptable was for Chavismo to be out of the government, for President Maduro to be out of the government, and they needed to have a way of pushing that forward. And the United States spearheading that movement started implementing sanctions against Venezuela or increasing sanctions that have already been in place. Some of these sanctions don't allow us to you know, renegotiate our debt um, and, you know, put more economic constraints on an already uh, uh, fragile economy. It doesn't allow us to repatriate uh, dividends from CETO, which is our, our subsidiary of Televesa or our national oil company in the United States. It doesn't allow, or it, it, it sort of condemns uh, high-ranking officials in the Venezuelan government by name, putting them in some list that you know, banks, companies, uh, nobody wants to have a, a signature from any of these officials because, you know, they, they, they're, they're uh, signaled out as uh, people that are involved with crimes or, or this sort of thing, and, and, and companies might be even uh, afraid of, of, of signing treaties with a country because their leaders are somehow under these uh, coercive measures or sanctions. Um, and in other important uh, uh, aspects that, that uh, or other important actions that the U.S. government and some of their allies, including Canada, took against Venezuela was to issue warnings to their banking system. This is not something that is usually described as one of the sanctions, but but this is very important. They've issued warnings against, uh, you know, to, to their banking system saying, you know, whatever, you know, Venezuelan public money uh, you've run into could be the subject of corruption, could be the subject of uh, money laundering or, or drug money and so forth, and has created a stoppage of the flow of Venezuelan currency to be able to pay for the importation of medicine, to be able to pay for you know, importing uh, uh, food. You know, at, at the beginning of this year, 2018, I could tell you that um, you know we had we needed malaria medicine. And uh, we needed to purchase it, and, and we were not able to do so because companies, uh, because some companies felt that you know uh, they were they were not going to be, uh, or they could be, they were going to receive some sanctions against them if they sold some of the components. At the beginning of the year, we had half, you know, of of, of the com chemical components that we needed to fight malaria, and the other half we couldn't purchase because of this reason. Or we had money stuck in banks because they weren't being able to transfer. I'll tell you even, even something as, uh, that, that might not seem, uh, 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 you might not believe because, you know, you, you know in uh, diplomatic relations, 
there's always a, a guarantee that, that uh, our diplomats and they, they can carry out their, their functions uh, even in time of war, they can carry out the, their functions normally. But our diplomatic missions have, have faced uh, you know, the problems such as not being able to pay uh, or at least to receive our, our money in, in order to pay our salaries, to pay our bills, electric bills, uh, you know, the water bills, etc. Because the banks will simply stop the you know, a, 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 a money transfer for more than a month or two months, or, or even you know return the money transfers because uh, you know it comes from Venezuela, from the Venezuelan state, and it might be uh, it might be corrupt money, or it might be uh, money that then you know tied to some sort of crime. This is this is outrageous because this but what this is doing is basically it's not saying that you know, Venezuela is uh, or it's allowed uh, it's allowing the narrative to be that Venezuela is in the midst of a humanitarian crisis because it, because it can't pay for. Uh, for food, or you can't pay for medicine, and that's not to say that there are not problems. I mean, the, the, these problems are there. But if we did not have these sanctions uh, being applied financially to Venezuela, there, there will definitely be a, a different result. With the idea, with the notion that there is a humanitarian crisis, that there's a migratory crisis, uh, which is also being uh, promoted uh, more recently, it's it's a platform to allow for intervention. It's a platform to allow for uh, other countries to either come in militarily or you know, in any other ways to pressure of Venezuela. And you know, this is not a, a, a conspiracy theory. Um, you know, President Trump himself has said that he doesn't allow the military option for Venezuela. And you know, we have to say that it, it is very um, uh, worrisome that we have a uh, uh, we have na a neighbor uh, in Colombia, uh, which is strongly armed, and, and whose president, you know, has also uh, talked about very freely about not recognizing the government of Venezuela, and and you know we, we could be facing a potential situation where uh, not a direct intervention by the United States, but perhaps by some of our of, of our neighbors. Um, just and, and that is going to be justified by uh, you know tending to a crisis, a supposed existence of a humanitarian crisis that has been uh, not only fabricated uh, or augmented by uh, the media narrative, but but actually these sanctions that that you know have been implemented against Venezuela. That was Venezuelan Deputy Minister of Foreign Affairs Carlos Ron Martinez speaking by Skype to a Winnipeg audience on October 19th, 2018. You've been listening to the Global Research News Hour. You can listen to our programs every week on CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and on partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. You can also download each episode from the website globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I'm series host, creator, and producer Michael Welch. Join us again next week.